Hello and welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast. Nels Abbey is an accomplished British writer, media executive, satirist and diversity consultant. Born in London to Nigerian parents, Nels talks us through his perhaps unconventional upbringing and his career, as well as sharing his views on diversity in the workplace. In particular, we discuss his personal approach and use of humour to confront the realities of racial discrimination at work, as well as his perspective on how we as a society can overcome barriers to racial equality. I'm Gemma Soul, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Nels Abbey, welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights podcast. Absolutely delighted to be here with you, Gemma. Thank you for having me. Uh, Nels, I'd love to talk about some of the work you do, but before I before we get into that, let's talk about you. Um, tell me about your upbringing. Where are you from? Where are you now? Yeah, so very, very. Um, <laughs> I have a very, very confusing and um, somewhat complex upbringing. So I was um, I'm born in Britain, in London specifically, in St Mary's, um, which is I feel like to pray that I was born in the same hospital as the future King of England, uh, Prince George. So I was born there, I and mean, then I was fostered very, very early in life. So I was, um, before I knew who I was or anything else, I was in foster care. So I was born in London, my parents, which was a very trendy thing to do for West African people, immigrants to the UK at the time. They were fostering their children out to white working class families in the countryside. So I was fostered in a place called Benson. So then I lived there and I lived in a place called Rugby. I lived in a place called Derby with my lovely foster parents who pretty much raised me for the first 10 years of my life. And then I moved back to London when I was about 10 to come live with my mum. And then with my mother, to live with my mum, we lived in a place called Maidavelle, which is now a very, very nice area. When I was in foster care, I went to very, very exceptionally good schools in the countryside, um, in which um, there was a massive emphasis on manners and decorum and everything else and how you pronounce your words and just everything. So your fork had to be in your left hand, your knife in your right, back up straight, elbows off the table, all the classic mannerisms of the, um, yeah. But when I moved to London, I then went to... This was not nowadays where schools in London are actually quite good on average. This was in the olden days, which schools in London were pretty vicious in the inner city. And I went to what turned out, we didn't know at the time, but it turned out to be one of the single worst schools in the country. So, yeah, the first few years of my life, first two or few years of my life was pretty crazy. Because after I moved, stayed with my mum, I then moved to Nigeria for a bit to go live with my dad. And my dad put me in a very, very tough boarding school, which he went to as a child too, which was also crazy. So, yeah. I've had probably one of the people with more unique childhoods, but I'm sure there's people with, with crazier ones than me. There we go. So, so how long were you at school in London before you moved to Nigeria? I was in school in London for about two, two and a half years. And then I, I was in school in Nigeria for about five. So, yeah, then I came back to London to do my GCSEs. So, yeah, so it was... um. It was crazy. It was, I think, again, the culture shock moving from getting used to living in the countryside, as in, again, so black person fostered in the countryside, knowing that your parents did not look like you and then no one else looked like you or so, and then really having to understand the difficulties of these things in our society, as in whether it's racism or anything else. And I was lucky that I had a German-Jewish um, foster mom who clearly understood racism. Um, she was a she was a child during the war. So actually probably in the 20s during the war, but she un- clearly understood racism and she explained it to me as a very, very young boy. And uh, it's quite funny because she, till this very day, my old mother 
black immigrant, Nigerian immigrant to the UK doesn't really talk about racism in the slightest bit, but my foster mum did. And she explained it to me. And um, and the funny thing about it was that, um, so living with her was very, very interesting. And she really put really set me up for a good life. And then my mum too, it's my mum's very, very strong work ethic and morals and church and everything else. And then going to Nigeria, that, and that was where it was pretty much like, yeah, morals and discipline with a capital D was really instilled. Uh, I mean, discipline is instilled in Nigeria at the end of the cane. So, yeah, so I had an 1850s style British education in the 1990s in Nigeria. So, yeah, so it was uh, pretty rough and tough at times. And so you were living with your foster mum uh, until you were 10. So what yep. kind of age were you having those conversations around race? I think with my foster mum, it was, it, my, I was probably about seven, eight or so. I remember when I was about eight in particular, I remember is when it really stuck in my mind because I, I kept getting into trouble in school. And then my, I kept, when I kept getting in trouble, it was almost like I'll get into a fight or so and I'll be suspended. And then there was always like the harsher punishment was consistently falling on myself. And my foster mum didn't want to give it a name. Uh, my foster dad certainly didn't want to give it a name or so. He was a, a very, very strong, brilliant man. Um, brilliant man. But my foster mum, I, I think she wanted to give it. She was a, she refraining at first. And then she sat me down and gave me what essentially we now know as the talk, um, which is quite unique given that you have it from a quite unique in retrospect to me being raised by my foster parents or so was normal that's all I knew I was born into that so that was my mum and dad I was born into that um but now in retrospect when I speak to my friends and they speak of how their parents prepared them for society um and how it differed to my preparation for society or so as in a being taught by a German Jewish lady who pretty much was a young person during the war or so fled to Britain and everything else having that conversation with someone like that, it was actually very unique and very, very, a very, very different experience altogether, I would say. So I think that, um, yeah, so I'm, I remain very grateful to her to this very day. But I think the key thing for myself in having that conversation with, with her was just the, was the enlightenment. It was the opening of the eyes that, okay, I'm different. But the good thing about it that I found too is that the thing she did to boost my esteem and show me that I was special so. So when she explained to me everything else that, hey, you're, I mean, when she really broke it down, I had an experience before then about being a black person or so in, in, in Britain, as in, uh, I often tell the story, but but that very moment where she said to me that, hey, this is it, sometimes these things will happen to you, so you'll be treated a bit harshly. I just remember the next day, um, this was around 87, 88, the Olympics was on. Or maybe maybe the Olympics or maybe some sort of sports thing. And I remember Linford Christie at the time was Mr. Great Britain. And um and I I loved it. I loved our flag in particular, the Union Jack. And I just always was very, very proud. I wasn't I don't think I was British at the time. I was English, quintessentially English. I didn't care about anything other than Englishness was a and then um and I just remember um my foster mum pointing out saying that yeah, that man of the Linford Christie, he's like you, he's black and he's brilliant and one for another. And then I just remember thinking to myself, I was very proud that yeah, that guy is like me. And actually, yeah, he is he is good. And then, and so and I and yeah, so it's very different. But then when you move to London when I was about 10 years old, and I then went from a all being the only black kid around for miles, and then being boom, um pretty much in a predominantly black class and predominantly black area, or predominantly mixed area of lots of black friends and everything else. It became a very different thing, a different culture shock. Um, now, so if we fast forward um, to, you know, 
starting out as in in your career so you became you became aware aware of your race um at a very young age and different Mm. environments being the minority being in a very um multicultural um environment you started out in your career in london working in investment management is that right yep yep no actually i worked in professional services before asset management yeah okay okay. i worked for for a brief period of time yeah yeah, because you've had an interesting career, Nels, um, you know, working across several different industries. So t- tell me a little bit about your, your career story then. Started my career in professional services. I graduated from university in um, 2005. Um, I, I started my career immediately just... Um, well, it took a few months and a lot of applications and a lot of but when you graduate from university you are you are pretty much at the mercy of the market because you just need to get in where you fit in you need to find some way to get in and build yourself up from there and um if you're coming from a working class background it could be very very difficult because if you're coming from a working class background you may not have known the various the games that are played in our society in order to get on and get ahead and it starts a lot earlier than university. It starts almost from, I would say, I don't know if it starts from primary school, but it certainly starts at secondary school. And the school you go to in secondary school will mark you for life or so. And so will the university you go to and everything else. It's all part of the signalling of, of, it's all part of, of course, to some degree, it's class signalling. To another degree, it's intellect signalling or so. Um, because the class, and the two things relate to each other. Um, the class signalling will often indicate that you would know how to play the game, know what institutions to get into and which ones to stay clear from. If you're working class or so, you probably might not know those things. And I was the latter. So graduating from university, um, I was looking for jobs. And I mean, I really went through it. I was just determined to make sure I got in and on because it was a big break for my family. My mother, for example, was a cleaner at um, the BBC, that was her career. And so um, it, we kept working and got through, got my first job in a, in a professional services firm. And it was amazing. I, I cannot tell you how proud I was. And then um, I then called up one of my best friends who went to university and college together. So I said to him, I got, I got a job. And I was the first of all my friends to do so. And he was shocked. He, he was said to me, are you sure? Are you sure it was a mistake? And I said, yeah, yeah, I really got it. And then, um, yeah, boom, that was it. So. And, we were my friends, all of us, my family. That very evening, but it's once I got the job, he just came over to my house with his with his girlfriend, who is now his wife, and we all just pretty much just sat there and drank lemonade together to celebration. We couldn't even afford a drink; it was just literally we just drank seven up together, something else. It was a big break for us. And then um started day one. Day one was started off day one. Got there too early in the morning. I was meant to start at ten. I got there at 8.45 because I wanted to make it clear that I'm very determined to make it. And long story short, I've repeated this story so many times, but I don't know how many people have heard it, but I was waiting at the reception to get picked up by my boss and two gentlemen walked towards me. As they walked towards me, they started patting themselves down. And then the first gentleman pulled out his identity card and showed it to me. The second gentleman did the same thing. Then the lady behind them did the same thing. And then it's kind of snowballed from there. Everybody kept showing me their ID cards one by one. And of course, what happened was that everybody mistook me for the security guard. And um, it wasn't until I got to my floor that I realized, okay, what was going on? Um, so when my boss picked me up around about quarter to 10, um, she took me up to my floor and then I met my new colleagues. I mean, about 160 something of them. This was our department. And I was the only non-white face there. It was like being at Benson all over again. And um, there was, and this was, again, this was not... Louisiana in the 50s or even Benson in the 80s or so this was London in 2005 
but inside that office it was still very very monocultural very very there was even in the code of communication and um, how they conduct themselves that it was very clear that anybody and I think it's probably part of why I got on there number one um, the background I came from also kind of helped me assimilate a little bit more I'm um, growing up in the countryside and everything else but yeah but it was interesting just a, a place to experience I worked there for a car for a few years um, actually a couple of years and um, I just quickly realized that professional services was too wasn't really for me it just wasn't really I didn't I wasn't getting the rush of excitement and I I was dating a young lady at the time but she got a job in asset management and then she was just so determined that I get out of the department because she didn't think it was living up to my potential and everything else and I thought I would be in that company for the next 20 30 years or so and work my way up to partner and but I wasn't enjoying it as much as I should have done but then um, she just pretty much set me up with everything to get a job and I got a job in asset management and um, it's pretty interesting. So asset management are a lot more fast-paced than professional services. Again, it's still an upper-middle-class career. So particularly, the, there's still a clear social order. The higher you are in, um, in the front office roles, the more likely you are to be upper-middle-class upper middle class person. I actually once worked with a member of the royal family who was, on, who was, who was in the front office. So and it just speaks to... When I say a member of the royal family, I'm not talking to one of the frontline ones or so, but he's one of the background people you, whose name you probably heard of, but you probably wouldn't know him that much, but he's a cool guy. And um, that's what it was like um, working in asset management. Asset management was interesting. It was fascinating to me. So I stayed in asset management for about 10 years, had a good time there. I made some, I did quite well for myself, worked my way up to a very senior level. And then I got an opportunity to go and help run the BBC at senior level, go and work for the BBC at senior level. And then um, I took it. I took it. I thought to myself, okay, this is interesting. Number one, they wanted people who had creative experience, professional, corporate, strong corporate, man leadership experience, and everything else. And I had those things. And then um, I just thought, okay, let me just go for it. And um, I'll have a book, a few hundred applicants or so. I emerged in the top two. And there it was. A part of me also felt too with the BBC thing. Part of me felt that there was some sort of poetic justice to it because. A, my mum worked there as a cleaner, and I wanted to make my mum proud that, look, yes, you were there mopping the floors, but I'm going there a generation later, um, or literally just your own child going there as a senior executive, and I thought that was a good, important thing for my mum to witness in her lifetime. And it was an interesting place. Again, it was another unique experience going into the BBC. Also, I should point out, when I was working in banking, I was also writing for newspapers and writing bits and bobs here and there, so I always had a creative outlet, um, which is very important to me. So working my way up from professional services into asset management, then into the BBC, unique professional services and, and asset management are clearly linked. There's a clear link between two of them. But then going into um, making that detour into, into the creative sphere or so, it was a very, very big leap for me in quite a different realm. So, yeah. But then you've taken um, another leap in your career. Yep, uh, yep. One of them includes the, the authoring uh, or co-authoring of a book, Think Like a White Man, um, yes. where you use humour to confront some really um, sensitive and difficult topics. So yep. tell me a little bit about the book and where did the idea come from? And yeah, how, how, how did that develop as a concept? So I, throughout my career, I had very, I think 
what were what I now consider to be unique experiences by virtue of the fact that people would tell me that this is quite different to their experience. And that wasn't just for um, for the norm in the professional world as in white middle-class people. That was actually for black people too. They were saying that this is quite unique. I've never experienced this or so. And then I kept, and then also to growing up as I did um, in the countryside and then to London, then to Nigeria. So, I was always somebody who's always had to adapt and adjust to a different environment. And then, um, and then I'd always adapt and adjust by actually identifying who, and I didn't know it at the time when I was little, but, um, but I know it now, that the norm is that if you want to flourish in a particular environment, and it's a sad thing to say, but you have to identify who dominates that environment or so and try and actually try and mimic them or try and actually um, identify how they conduct themselves and, um, and see how you could potentially do the same thing. So, um, and I was thinking that through, I, I was thinking that through, I had all these experiences in the professional world and I had a particular guy who was a mentor to me, who was a very brilliant man. He was this um, East London Cockney and um, East London Asian Cockney actually. In the book, he's, he's portrayed as black, but he's actually Asian in real life. And um, he was always somebody who would always give me nuggets of advice. Like for example, if I was, I was there working class guy, Working class black guys sometimes I'll get some I'll do some stupid stuff like wear um wearing a belt and a and a, and my shoes that were different colours or so which is again a signifier of the fact that you just don't know the code or how to conduct yourself over here and I didn't know those things so I might wear a brown belt or a brown a black pair of shoes or a black pair of shoes and a brown belt and I didn't and it sounds it sounds like it's nothing but it's the type of thing that people can tell as to are you, do you really belong here or don't you belong here? Do you really know how this goes? Can we put you in front of a client? And all these different things. I don't really like drinking much per se. I've, I have a very, as you can probably tell already in this telephone call, I have a very, very excited and um, relaxed demeanor from birth. That's just who I am also, I like to think. And so if you put alcohol into my system or so, I just go into overdrive. It'd be quite embarrassing pretty quickly. I mean, one glass of red wine, I, I just, I'm really, I'm really embarrassing. So I'm, I'm, I don't really drink at all. So the, what was funny is that um, in, in those environments or so, so whenever we'd go to the pub, often I would just go home or I'd just have to stay at my desk and start writing something else or just keep working. And then um, this guy would see everybody else going to the pub and I'll be going to going home and he would call me over and say to me, look, there's no... There's no diversity scheme in the pub, for example. That's where careers are made and broken. And he would just always explain to me about how the game works. And sometimes he'd always point to his head and say, you ought to play the white man, think like a white man. <laughs> I used to laugh at it, like, think like a white man. Alas, the guy was right. That um, What he said in the end or so, what he was saying, that is how he had lived by it. So that is how he had gone from a deeply working class cockney background from East London also to somewhere to the very pinnacle of the business. And it's because he understood just that. And he, and he had been for a similar thing to my situation to myself. So him coming from his background, growing up in um, Redbridge, in the, which is a place in East London, uh, growing up at the time in an area that was synonymous with the National Front, um, he understood the difficulties and the implications of race, um, particularly in the corporate environment. And he, he made it work for himself. And he was just showing me how, to, how I can make it work for myself too. And some of the advice was crazy. Some of it was just insane. But it was stuff that consistently worked to a certain degree. So I just thought to myself, okay, this guy's right. And then as time was going on, I was getting my experiences. And have, with any career, you have your ups and you have your downs. And you have your, your moments of victory and your moments of defeat and everything else. 
I just thought, so let me just mark all these down and write a funny book about it. And I thought that, because uh, uh, in Britain at the time, people were writing about, people have been writing about race for decades now in Britain, probably even hundreds of years. And I just thought, like, let me just do it my way. So as opposed to writing a book about race, which is going to make you cry or something else, like it's going to make you cry or going to really just evoke really hard um, emotions out of you. I wanted to do something that's going to make the reader laugh, think and do better. And that's my talent. That's what I think I'm good at doing. And I just want to just do it. So I wrote a book called Think Like a White Man, which again, rolls off the tongue when you're giggling to yourself in your study or in your room where you're writing. But when you see your name on the shelf somewhere in a book, in a bookshop, or you see that you're getting mentioned in newspapers or everything else, you think you're, that's your name beside the words Think Like a White Man in Britain. It's quite scary. But um, it's good that people, everyone seems to get it, that people, that people seem to get the get it. So particularly people in the professional realm, they got it. They saw that, OK, this is what's going on over here. And I think it landed the message about the difficulties that ethnic minorities have in the professional world a lot better than it probably would have if I wrote just a straight hit book called The Difficulties of Being an Ethnic Minority in the Professional Realm, which already sends you to sleep. So, um, yeah, so and that's what we did. And I think it's worked out pretty well so far. So we'll see what happens in the future. And you can see that's a very um, natural style for you to adopt, Nels, because we, we've worked together a couple of times now, yep, yep. Um, setting up reverse mentoring programmes, and particularly in a programme that we set up uh, recently, one of the participants uh, said actually they want to have fun doing it, yeah. so they're exploring really challenging topics they're trying to understand as a white middle-aged man what are the challenges that their colleague from an ethnically diverse background what are the challenges that they're experiencing but let's have some fun um in that conversation in exploring that difference so how how can you do that how can you encourage people to um have have conversations about race in uh, a fun and engaging way because it's it's something that it's a a topic that a lot of us shy away from because we're worried about causing offence or, um, you know, upsetting. Yeah, I think that for me, the first thing I do, I I get that people are worried about causing offence. So I just make sure I overdo it. So we we get the offence elements out the way that I just make it clear that from the beginning, you are going to be offended. If you're easily offended or so, then you might want to sit here and make sure that you that you get your good dose of, of offense because you're going to get that at this time around. So I try and make it as not as light by trip. Look, the best humor is the one that contains truth. Um, so and all human degrees of humor degree it contains some truth. The best jokes contain truth in them. And I think that if we can all laugh at these things, if we can find a way to if we can find a way to actually look at the difficulty of what we've of the systems and the biases and the stigmas and everything else that we've all collectively inherited that we're trying to get rid of as a society to make a better society for ourselves if we can find a way to actually laugh at the stupidity of some of these things or the or the um or the silly nature of them too it, it will put us all in better standing i believe very firmly um i put us all in better standing because again if you can identify that something is so stupid that you have to laugh at it when you hear it in joke or so, it will make you think twice about doing it in real life. So it will make you do, uh, think twice about when you go back to the office or so. You, you know deep down you don't want to do something that's going to get you laughed at. Because no, there's, if there's anything worse than being criticised harshly or even justly or so, it's actually just being dismissed as ridiculous when you're laughing at something or so. And also, too, the other, the other key thing here is that, look, the greatest philosopher of the 20th century was a young early 30s lady called Mary Poppins. And she said very beautifully 
called the spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in the most delightful way. And I think that that's just key thing with my with, um, with what I with what I do as far as satire is concerned, or as far as any of us are concerned in any space or so. If you can find a way to laugh with each other, and not when we're laughing at people, but we're laughing at a particular situation that we know we have to make better than, I think you would trigger people that 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 desire to change. But the key thing here is that it's finding ability to to really make light of these things. Because when you can make light of things, you're shedding light on things. And when you're shedding light of things, you're dispersing them, you're disinfecting them out of our system and out of our society. And I think that's a that's a very important thing for all of us to do and be able to do. So yeah, so but and but again with any of these things that we do, it's always about try and make people laugh in order to trigger them to change. Mm-hmm. That's- Bit of a big question here, but what do you think the biggest barrier to racial equality is in society? It's a very big question. I think that, I think that, I'm not sure if there's one biggest barrier. I think that racial inequality is so embedded into our society that to understand, as in to understand what racial equality is, is a radical fault altogether. That it's so, I'll give you a case in point. Sexism, for example, is very much, sexism or homophobia is very much embedded in, into our society. Even in, if you take from homophobia, for example, even in these enlightened times, more enlightened times, in which people understand, now are accepting that homosexuality is a naturally occurring concept in which people are born in a particular way or so, and everything else, and they're attracted to who they're attracted to. That's pretty much that. Till this very day, it's still seen as this is a subculture to what is normal, which is um, heterosexuality. So therefore, heterosexual people in power or anywhere else or so can still dictate the lights and the outcomes and the happiness of various people who are nothing like them whatsoever. So that the freedom to be who you are and what you are as a homosexual person, as a gay person, LGBT person in a society is still largely dictated or is still at the whim of what is deemed normality, which is to be heterosexual. That's the dominance in our society. Same thing with sexism in our society too. So when it comes to sexism, most men in our society, and in fact, to a certain degree, most women too, have a limited concept of what equality looks like between the sexes. So we often look for pressure points of how we can measure it. Equal pay, equal access to opportunity, representation but even then when you go into these environments the standard for who is the leader of this society or the standard for what we're basing equality against or so is still straight men but still heterosexual men um and that we speak society holistically or so both in britain or anywhere else in the world or so Wherever you go in the actual entire world right now, you'll still find that it's still heterosexual men who are at the top of society and are defining what is actually acceptable and not acceptable in our society. Even the other day, for example, Nigeria, I spent some time in in my teenage years, which is my ancestral homeland where my parents are from. Um, The other day I saw some footage, horrible stuff, where an army, a soldier, in the year of our Lord 2020, a soldier was beating a woman for wearing clothes that he disapproved of in the street and of course this is insane this is just insane stuff but the key thing that we have now so the key barrier to racial equality is a i don't think it's one barrier i think it's many barriers a would be understanding of what equality actually looks like 
and then B, eradicating the structure that always places, eradicating the structure and the system and the institutional practices that place certain degrees, certain types of human beings at the pinnacle of society and others persistently subservient to them. So when we look at equality right now, so we're thinking, okay, white men are here, so straight white men, middle class, economically secure, and um, establishment white men are a particular place. And everybody else has to find their way to go up to where they are in order to achieve equality. If you're a working class black woman or a working class black man or two, for example, that is such an unbelievable stretch to get to in one lifetime or even two or three or four or 20 or 10. But here's the issue that we have with it, that that understanding of what it means to actually to, to achieve some degree of equality, it's, we still don't really have a real blueprint for it. It's still quite clearly we're going along as we, we're just going along on a day to day basis trying to actually figure things out. I also feel that to a certain degree, there's always the resistance to movements towards equality. So not every racist or so even meets in us that some people do recognize in our society that there's a benefit, there's benefits to racism. I don't believe there's benefits to certain people that do, that do believe explicitly in our society, quite clearly that certain that there's a social order in our society and it must be maintained because that social order has served us well. And in reality, when I say it served us well, it means it served them well. For example, you read certain newspapers, for example, that are dominated by um, certain men and certain political persuasions, for example. And it's always the men, um, when I say that in any society, it's always the men that's normally pushing these things. The problem that we have with it is that those people will promote it around society and make it clear that here's what the situation, here's what the situation actually, here's what the situation is, here's what this has served our society well, it's created stability, it's created profitability, it's created a, a sound economic framework and so on and so forth, so it has to be maintained the way it is. The reality is it's created good lives for them and given them undue advantage. So finding that way to actually get to win those arguments against those type of voices which are dominant in our society which control media, are, very, are well overrepresented in media, everything else, so it's very, very difficult. It's extremely difficult. And then also, too, when it boils down to it, too, it's the economic thing, that equality, um, racial equality, the poorer you are on the social ladder, the more likely you are to actually experience um, the hardships of, um, of, racial, of, of racial inequality. Um, so there is an economic aspect to it. I'm not some Corbynista, um, radical left wing, I'm a former banker for crying out loud. But, but I do say this, that the more, I mean, if you look at, if you take a look at African-Americans, for example, is it a coincidence that, hey, the poorest community within society are the ones more likely to be subjected to police brutality? No. Is it a coincidence that, hey, that the people who are descendants of, of, the, of the crime, the mass crime, the mass criminal enterprise that was the enslavement of African-Americans or so um, over hundreds of years, are those people who are still likely to be find themselves imprisoned in large numbers and everything else? So no, because when you boil down to it, the economics of it also, the economics influences the social side of things. Or as somebody said, dollars brings dignity, that people with money or so don't get treated like trash or somewhere else where they, they become strong, they know how to actually fight back to these things. So I think there's many different aspects. There's a, there's a political side of things so I often, but, I, but if I wanted to really wrap it up, I'll wrap it up as four Ps in terms of how we achieve the barriers to, uh, to racial equality. So it's four Ps. One would be privilege, of course, access to privilege or so. The other would be portrayal. The other would be pound sterling, which is money. And the final one would be political representation. Privilege, portrayal, political representation and pound sterling, the four Ps. So when you look at the actual privilege side of things, so underprivileged people, racial inequality 
is the is at the root cause of underprivileged many people of ethnic minorities certainly, and also to the bigger the stigma the ethnic minority actually faces, the worse are the the experience they're going to get. So the stigma is often perpetuated via media, which is one of the actual reasons why I moved into media to actually help with those things. That stigma, media sometimes inadvertently allows itself to be used to create stigmas around certain people. So portrayal is very, very important. As we mentioned before, the economics of things, pound sterling is also is also an important realm too. And then the final thing you have is political representation, that people, that underprivileged people or, the, or racially racialized people often underrepresented as far as political representation is concerned too. So if we can find those great ways to actually resolve those four things, privilege, portrayal, uh, politics, and pound sterling, then yeah, we'll, we'll find, we'll move closer towards some sort of notion of racial equality in our society. But as it stands right now, we're quite far away from it. Mm. I'll give you one, another final thing too, is that some of the things that come up, some of the false equivalences that are brought up in our society. So often what we're often finding is that when you go into, when you read the press, white working class boys are the are extremely disadvantaged in our society. I There's a guy, one of my best friends when I was little, um, when I moved to London, was a guy called Stanley. Um, he lived down my street. His dad was a dustbin man. And um, his dad still lives on the same street as my mother till this very day. Um, I see Stan. Stanley didn't go to university. He didn't do, he didn't go through, he didn't have the type of parent I had, which was, you must go to, I knew from a very young age, I would go to university and everything else. He had his dad, and his dad was not a bad man, so his dad was a very working class man. And the issue that um, Stanley, till this very day, for example, when I see Stanley, we're very different parts. We're very, very different people. So, so I'm like an alien to him today. And my, so my siblings, so all of us have gone into the professional classes, where Stanley's still living a very, fairly rough life. So the last time I saw him, he had recently had a metal plate inserted into his head because he got into a fight in which his skull was broken open. Mm. So, um, so that's... That's the extent to what it is. Now, here's the issue that we deal with also. Um, opportunities in our society, racial opportunities in our society will then compare, say, a white working class boy to, say, a white working class young boy who's not likely to go to university and go through some very, very rough stuff in our society. And we have to find a way to resolve it. But then they'll compare it to, say, black people who are also predominantly working class. But the key issue is this, is that I often think that pitching one set of working class people or so against another set of predominantly working class people is quite a vicious thing to do because it keeps those two people at loggerheads. The key thing that I think we should be looking at is why are white working class, the question we should be trying to ask is why are white working class boys, for example, more or less significantly less likely to go to university and prosper in life compared to say their middle class white equivalents or black equivalents, for example. And the reality of the matter is that you then boil down to the class inequality, inequality question across the board which is when you'll then, you'll then get to the root of the issue. And that's the part of the actual question I often find that we don't want to answer. And I think that has to be a record answer for any, any question anybody's ever been given on planet Earth. But, but I, I hope there's something that like someone can take away. So yeah. the amount I spoke there, but yeah, I hope there's something you can take away for that, Gemma. Thanks, Nels. Um, can I close on one, one final question? Please. So if you had... Um, every CEO of the FTSE 350 in a virtual room, listening to you, coming to you for advice on how they can start to improve inclusion in their organisations, what one piece, what nugget would you give to them? I would tell them all 
to get up and we're going to march to a bookshop together collectively and we're all going to buy a copy of Think Like a White Man. <laughs> so we will be forced to understand exactly what is going because that's, it's not one thing. It's never one thing or so. It's so vast and complex and everything else so that we have to find a way almost like shock therapy to show them that hey this is what's going on and this is how it's happening in our society and this is how it's happening in our society and here's how you are playing a part in maintaining that and here's how you can play a part in dismantling that but uh, but in addition to my self-serving advice or so putting that to one side what piece of advice would I give them um if I was really thinking about it or so uh, if I was to give them one piece of advice, just like one piece of advice, I would say, listen, find somebody in your organization, just that one person or so, who you know, and make, make it clear to that person they can be honest with you. And they can really be honest with you. They can tell you exactly what is on their mind or so. Whether it's a black person or a, or a poor person or a, a person from a challenge background or anything else, who you know they've had to overcome a lot to get to where you to get into your organization and are therefore probably likely to be over grateful that they're there. I would say sit that person down and have an honest conversation with them and listen to what they say, listen to their experiences, listen to, to what their day to day life is like and going over here. Ask them their fears or so for their hope for themselves or so. And don't just have one conversation, have 20 with them. Persistently keep going back for more and more conversations. Get to know that person and understand exactly what the barriers to progress are within your organization, the barriers to equality, the barriers to um, the barriers to basically making your organization the best place it could potentially be. Try and just get to know that person or so. Because again, if the person who's at the front of the ship um, doesn't understand what it's like for the person at the back of the ship or so, right? Then quite frankly, quite frankly, if you're not careful, the ship's going to be dysfunctional. And what we just need is some is, is are those people who listen, who have that ability and that desire to just sometimes listen to people and then act on what you are hearing. So what you're hearing will so, say, so you are in a unique position. You're one of the 350 almost notionally most powerful people in our society. Um, economically at least. You are the captains of this industry that we call the United Kingdom. So yeah, so listening to those people and trying to identify great ways in which we can actually make things better for them would probably be my piece of advice to them. And not just for them, because the better the better place, as everybody knows, as far as inequality is concerned, the more, even if we use um, the, the great Lady Thatcher's um, approach towards it, so which is um, um, Lady Thatcher was once asked by, in her last Prime Minister's questions, she was asked about inequality, growing inequality in our society. She said, well, yes, there might be greater inequality or so, but the bottom has moved up. Even if you approve, you, you identify that approach or so, if you identify that approach, if you, if you take Lady Thatcher's approach towards things, it's still a big step towards, it's still a big step more so than nothing or so. I personally would think that, look, narrowing the gap between the top and the bottom whilst moving the actual bottom up or so, um, would be whilst the top continues to move up, but the bottom moves a lot faster towards where the top is. I think that's a great thing, and I think that for, and, and there's many ways in which that can be achieved. And I think that's on 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 our great CEOs of our FTSE 300, of our top 350 companies in our society. That's on them to try and help do that, and they've got a unique experience in life on the, their period on this planet to really make a difference. And I think they should grab it with both arms. Nels, thank you. That's been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Gemma. It's been great speaking to you. You've been listening to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights podcast. 
with host Gemma Soul and guest speaker Nels Abbey, writer, satirist, media executive and diversity consultant. I find Nels' approach to tackling racial issues quite provocative, but also refreshing. He brings a lightness and openness to the topic that almost helps it seem less intimidating. But for him, it's all about gaining deeper insight, thinking, and developing a motivation and commitment to act. If you'd like to hear other episodes, you can find our podcast through our website, www.schoolforceos.com forward slash thought hyphen leadership. It's also available across major platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for School for CEOs Leadership Insights. Thanks for listening and see you soon.